Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder, and I am not in Colorado Springs. I am instead in Franklin, Tennessee, hanging out with Kay, who has just moved out here, and uh, meeting a whole bunch of Holy Smokers that I have met through the group, some of whom I've also become friends with on Facebook, but I'm finally meeting in person for the first time, and my guest today is one of those who I have interacted with on Facebook a whole bunch. We've liked each other's stuff over the, geez, I'd probably say two plus years that we've been friends on Facebook. Every but, bit of it, yeah. And uh, Probably three. Yeah. Three or more, yeah. And today's guest is Harold Maxwell. Max! Yes. Welcome to the Holy Smokes Thank Podcast. You, Steve. Pleasure being here. My so, honor. So... Steve Grison, yes, mutual, mutual friend. friend. I think he, we, we connected through Steve. And yes. a while ago, I remember asking Steve, hey, does Harold, I know you two grew up together in, spent some time together in Hong Kong as kids. Does Harold have a story that, you know, that, that would be worthy of the podcast? And he's like, oh, bro. Oh, bro. The stories that this dude has and the experiences that he's had in his life, you get him going. And he's not going to stop. You just <laughs> <laughs> that could be a problem. Yeah, <laughs> my wife, my wife says so. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So, first question: What you smoking? Fuentes. I like the uh, Dominican tobaccos. My neighbor, General Westmoreland, commander of the Asian uh, Vietnam era. He uh, he was one of my neighbors, and. Um, in a uh, area just outside of Sanford, North Carolina, between Sanford and Fort Bragg, Carolina Trace. He, that's where he lived, and he smoked 858s. Yeah. A lot of 858s, because I collected the boxes, and uh, the wooden boxes were great to put stuff in, you know, and so I wound up with the boxes. Well, when I finally tried cigars, I, I'm going to try what he smoked. That's all he smoked. Yeah. And, and then I've tried other cigars, and so many of them, I don't care what you pay for them. Sometimes you pay 20 bucks for a stick and then you, you light it up and it tastes like a cigarette. I just throw the thing away. I'm not going to, I'm not doing that. You know, I just do not like that yes. flavor. Yeah. So I found that uh, the Dominican tobacco with the Maduro wrapper is kind of like my go-to cigar. Yeah. Now. You know, it's got, it's nice. It's full flavored, but not overly powerful, but it's got some spice to it, you mm. know. I don't do the nutmeg, uh, pine saw, whatever things that <laughs> pine people, <salt. laughs> people come up with. You know, I taste chocolate and pine saw. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> maybe you gargled with the wrong stuff this morning. I don't know. But uh, I just don't do all those flavors. I wish I could. I'm not that much of an aficionado. But I'm, I, uh, yeah. I just I, know I, what I like and exactly. I know what I don't like. I'm, I'm, I'm totally the same way. I've got an Atsaniki, their Maduro, and uh, yeah, we're going to be interviewing Charles Robinson, the owner of Atsaniki right after this. Yes. And uh, so, yeah, uh, this is a good stick. This is a really good stick. Good, good. So, tell me about your life growing up. You grew up in North Carolina. I'm going to try and get the short version on this. I uh, lived in North Carolina until I was age 10. Mom and dad were business people, both of them. I was raised by a black mammy, Katie Bell. And... Uh, my great aunt who was mostly blind and um my great aunt was uh she because she was blind and she read braille she would read me scriptures as a child and would give me a silver dollar every time i'd memorize a psalm 
And uh, so I had quite a collection and got into the word early. Had a lot of interesting stories as a child, but uh, loved life, loved country life, loved living in North Carolina, the Piedmont area of North Carolina. We were only a couple hours from the beach, you know, and uh, I had a creek right out, you know, close to my house at walking distance. I'd go fishing all the time in the summer and collect salamanders and lizards and snakes and turtles and, you know, that kind of stuff. Boy's life. Yeah. Boy's life. And uh, mom was a very successful businesswoman, uh, owned the Singer franchise. She was a seamstress extraordinaire, had a drapery shop. Drapes were big back in those days. And she had the drapery shop, fabric shop, a service center, service to singers machines, had male workers that would go and deliver the machines, set them up, repair them. Unheard of in the 50s, yes. you know, especially in the South. Woman's place was in the home, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. But the business was so successful. My dad, who was vice president of a manufacturing company, but they were praying about, do we, do I resign and help my wife and her business, or do I, do we sell the business? Because it was just, it was too much for both of them. Really? And um, they were praying about it, and the minister was visiting, uh, and he was visiting, he was praying with my wife, uh, my, my parents, and one night he goes, folks, he says, I feel like, the Lord is saying that it's neither one of those answers. That he's got something totally different for you. In fact, I believe it's the missions. And then sometime later, my mom went by to, um, to see this missionary from Hong Kong who was home on furlough, but she was about to leave and go back. And when we drove up in the yard, I was in the car at the time, an old station wagon. We pulled up in the drive and this missionary came out. She was wiping her apron, her hands on her apron. She, oh! Sister Jane, I'm so glad to see the Lord showed me you guys in a dream. I believe God is going to have you go to Hong Kong with me. And of course, my mom was like, that's not happening. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's not going to happen. But um, sure enough, that's what happened. Mom and dad, they sold out everything, uh, became missionaries to Hong Kong, took a slow boat to China. And um, I wound up going to Hong Kong. And, uh, and then I found out that life as I knew it was over. And uh, I had suffered a, a lot of losses that year. My great aunt passed away, so we were free to leave because she was living with us. Uh, that freedom happened, then we sold the business and the home and, and all that, and then became missionaries. Dad became the um, Asian director for T.L. Osborne Evangelistic Association because we got a van and movies and videos of, of projectors and generators and we could go out into the, the uh, new territories and show films to the boat people or to villages, even where there was no electricity, we could do that. And in the 60s, there was a lot of places in Hong Kong that didn't. A lot of the islands were inhabited with no electricity. So we could take this van, we could take a ferry and go over there and show them a movie and everybody on the island would attend. And then I'd give away lots and lots of tracks and local churches would be ministering and, you know, it's, it's great. So that's what I did. Um, but things weren't, the transition out there was not Horrible. Easy. It was horrible. It was horrible. Yeah, it was, it was terrible. Two years of my life, I'd, I'd, I'd rather be dead than alive, you know. It was, uh, you're too young at that age to know that this too shall pass, you know. And I uh, did not understand gangs. I did not understand street life. I did not understand why I was when I'm walking down the street. These guys wanted to beat me up, and I hadn't done anything to them. I did not understand why they would do that. 
and they didn't even fight fair. I mean, did you know they would fight like sissies? They would kick you in the face. You wouldn't even see that foot coming, man. I mean, bam, all of a sudden you're on the ground, you know. Yeah. And uh, I'd stand up and I'd put my arms out like, you know, like. Yeah, boys like American boxer. The American boxer, you know, okay. Look like a little Irishman up there, you know, the old Irish pictures of the boxers, bare-fisted guys. And, I'd, and they would be laughing, you know, because I didn't have a chance. I did not have a chance. Yeah. And uh, so I joined a street gang. I wound up joining a street gang. Uh, I say join. I hung out with the street gang. Once I did, my life got a lot easier on the street because they knew if they messed with me, seems like Joey gangs, triad 49ers would would you know would come. You know mm-hmm. they did not want to. They did not want those guys coming after them. Yeah. So uh, I kind of like this gang of life. You know, this is kind of cool. It's interesting, God uses this later in life, much later in life, years later, decades later, two decades later in the 80s when I'm smuggling Bibles, because there's something about gang life, living on the streets, you feel when people are following you or watching you. You can, you, you, you develop this sense and you, you become aware. I am totally aware of my surroundings. Mm-hmm. Even today, I, I sit with my back to a wall, facing the door. I mean, that's just something I do. I am always aware of my surroundings. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's funny because I was, I, I'll get to that story in a second. Going back. Um, so so I got involved with gang life. Uh, Dad tried to beat it out of me. He didn't know how, to what extent it was. He just knew that I was writing him hate letters and um, blame God for everything, you know. Um, had a real hard time adapting. The English, the people that looked like me, made fun of me because I, I talked like this because I was from North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And first day in class, I remember my teacher pulling me up by my ear to the front of the class going, this class is an American. And you shall not speak to him until he learns to speak proper English. Now go sit down. What? You know, that was my introduction to the class. Oh, my God. So it was tough. It was tough. Wow. Um, so... That yeah. probably hardened your heart quite a bit. Well, also, it, all the a lot of these kids now can—they got someone to bully, and and they'll look the other way. So I literally was knocked unconscious and had and wound up in the hospital getting my stomach put back together. I got knife scars all over my stomach. Ten years old. Oh my gosh! That happened by the time I was eleven. No wonder you. <laughs> and, and so, got so angry. So at your I got very angry. God. Yeah, yeah. You say God did this? Well, then I blame God. Okay, I don't yeah. want to ever see Him. You know. <laughs> and so, I uh, you couldn't preach a sermon hell enough for me. Uh, there's just nothing would touch my. my well, spirit. I, I remember before we started recording, you you mentioned that you told your parents. Yeah, oh, you're going to heaven. I want to go to hell because I don't yeah. want to be with you. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I would write them hate notes. When they would go out to church meetings and stuff, they'd come back and there'd be a letter that I would have typed out on a typewriter. Um, yeah, I took typing when I was you know, like yeah. 10 yeah. years old. And I would type them letters telling them how much I hated them. And that if dad wanted to beat me, he could beat me. And, and while he's at it, would he just go ahead and kill me because I'd rather be dead? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, those are the letters I was writing my dad. So when Dr. Clyde Naramore came to town, and I was, uh, I was 12 years old, and uh, he came to town to do a lecture. My dad was very smart and he, very cunning. Uh, he, uh, he, he asked me one night, he said, now son, he said, I'm gonna go hear this Dr. Nairmore. He's a psychiatrist, you know, they can read minds. 
And I'm like, ooh, you know, psychiatrists, they're like gods, you know, they're that, in my mind at that time, you know, that's why I, th I thought they could read minds. And, and, uh, and he said, I'm gonna go see a psychiatrist tomorrow. He's an American. And uh, no kids are allowed. It's all, all, all just for preachers. And uh, no kids are allowed at this meeting. It's gonna be at the Incan Church. Um, and uh, he said, but if you wanna go, I could take you, but you're gonna have to be really quiet. Well, you'd have to miss school, I guess. Uh, do you, do you want to go? Well, you know, first of all, I'd miss school. That's a good one. And no kids are allowed. So therefore I want to be there. Right. And this is an American psychiatrist and they're like gods, you know? So, okay. I want to go. And so, yeah, yeah, dad, I want to go. I'll, I'll be real quiet. I promise. And then afterwards he takes me up to meet him. And, um, then Dr. Nairmore invites me to lunch with him, us to lunch. And my dad, all of a sudden had this important meeting that I didn't know about that he had to go attend. Mm -hmm. And he was going to be gone for an hour. <laughs> Convenient. And Dr. Naramore looks at me and he said, well, why don't I take your son? We'll go to this restaurant right across the street. We'll be eating there. And when you get done, just come join us. Oh, okay. You know, and Dr. Naramore, I remember he started asking me questions about Hong Kong. I started telling him about gang life and my buddies that had the switchblade and how they were teaching me to fight. And, Kung Fu and chains and, you know, I stuck this cop the other day with a switchblade and, you know, all this stuff. And I'm, I'm telling what? him all these stories. Oh, yeah, I'm telling him all these stories about the street gangs and the fights and things I've been a part of. And <laughs> when my dad walks, and, and the thing is, so I never opened up to my dad about any of this. Dad didn't have a clue. Mm. He had no clue. And... Uh, but Dr. Naramore was really interested. I mean, and when I told him about my, my tall guy from Northern China, the tall one that's like six foot tall that carried that big eight inch switchblade in his, in his boot, in his beetle boots, remember the beetle boots? He carried a switchblade in his beetle boot. I, I said, you know, and I was telling him about this guy because he was my hero. And uh, <laughs> when, and he was never shocked. He just looked at me and like, really? Wow, that's interesting. You know, and I just thought I had found a friend, you know, this Clyde Nairwell, he is just really, you know, he wants to know all about this gang life, you know, <laughs> so I'm telling him, I'm spilling my guts and, and uh, I'm confessing like crazy. And my dad walks up, Dr. Manuel is my dad. He didn't even get to all the way here. He goes, do you love your son? Doesn't wait for an answer. Do you love your son? And my dad's like, well, yeah. He said, then get him out of Hong Kong right now. He does not go back to that school. He is a white boy. He's going to a Chinese jail, and that's not going to be good. And he is going to be there soon. I'm surprised he's not already dead. Get him out of this country now. Yesterday was his last day at that school. And I'm like, yay! Finally, someone heard me, you know. Yeah. yeah. And next thing I know, I was on a flight to Taiwan to Morrison Academy. But I hated God. You know, I didn't want to see my parents. I did not cry. I did not miss my parents. They would send me letters. I'd throw them straight in the trash. I never even opened them. They'd call. Did I tear this off? No, you're good. When they would call, I would, I would literally run out of the house and run down the street so I wouldn't have to talk to them on the phone. That's how bitter I was against my parents. As a 12-year-old, did not even accept their calls from home. You know, didn't want to talk to them. Didn't read their letters, didn't care, never wanted to see them again. This Harlem Globetrotters-like basketball team from America comes over to play the staff and teachers at Morrison Academy. And at halftime, this tall, bald-headed guy gets up and he starts telling his story. He's talking about David and Goliath actually having a, a triumph. 
and he rode a Triumph motorcycle because the Bible says this Triumph was heard throughout the land. It didn't have mufflers on it. And, uh, <laughs> and the guy was just hilarious. I was laughing so hard. I was up on the balcony and I was, you know, just hanging right over the balcony, eating it up. This guy was so funny. My guard was down. I did not realize I was in a church service, which is what it turned out to be, you yeah. know. And I accepted Christ as my Savior that day, was healed that day. And that very night. And when you say healed, what do you mean? The anger, the bitterness, the, all, all, the, all the ugliness of, of the gangs, the, the scarring, um, my grandmother passing, selling, going to Hong Kong, being missionaries, working with these poor people. You know, do, why can't I have my nice life back? You know, the material things that I once had, you know. Mm-hmm. Now we are, we're so poor that sometimes I can't even afford a popsicle. You know, we have to budget for the rest of the month. We don't have enough money to get to the end of the month. You know, we've got to believe God to supply our meal. Come on, really? I mean, when I was in Hong Kong, we, I mean, in America, we never had this problem. We had lots of food, you know. So there's all that and the anger. It was gone. It was just totally gone. And all I want that night, I remember going to bed thinking, I want to go to Hong Kong and reach those gang members and tell them about God's love. I want to do that. And when I went home at the end of that semester, I became a missionary in my own right. Hmm. I started witnessing everywhere, passing out tracts. I became very proactive in ministry, very proactive. And uh, ministering to Chinese gangs, drug addicts, uh, working in the walled city with the heroin addicts, um, boat people, any, anywhere and everywhere I could. Anywhere and everywhere. I could. Boat people meaning? The people that lived literally on junks. You have villages in Hong Kong that are made up of people that in the harbor, and it was just junks and sandpans. Uh, these people wow. never, they're, they're boat people. They, they were born on a boat, they live on a boat, they die on a boat. They, everything, their groceries are brought to them on a sampan. The sampan will come up waddling, and they'll look over and let me have that, that, and that. And they'll pass it up, you know. Wow. And uh, so we work with the boat people. We work with the Hawkeye, the, the farmers on the islands, Top Moon Island. I'll never forget Top Moon Island. Almost died there, <laughs> chased by a mob of angry communists. Uh, about 30 guys wanting to kill the American. I was on the, I'd gone on the far side of the island to fish facing the ocean and with a little hand line, you'd throw the, throw the hand line out and, you know, pull it in. And uh, all of a sudden, these guys were up at the top of the hill blocking my exit and they were quoting Mao Che Tong, you know, and chanting Mao. And, and I knew, man, I was, I was a dead man. I, I literally climbed a cliff and Took off running. They were chasing me. We're running down this little pathway back. And when I went around a bend, I just took one of these flying leaps and I just jumped off and landed in some small, I guess they were banana trees or something. It was some shrubs, oh bush. My gosh. And I just rolled over and laid perfectly still and the mob ran by. And then I went cutting through the, the forest, getting back the woods. I stayed off the trails to get back to the church. When I got back to the church, the whole church... As I walked in, they stopped praying. But someone there at the church had, I don't remember, I just, I, I've forgotten about this. So I went to church, said, I have a bird, where's, they call me HT back then, is my yeah. initials. You know, where's HT? Oh, he's fishing on the north side of the island. Oh, that's not a good place for him to be by himself. 
you know, we should be praying for him. I feel burdened. And my mom goes, you know, I've been burdened for him too. Something's wrong. And they started praying. And the more they prayed, the more intense it got. And it's like, no, this is something's going on. So when I showed up, they were like, there he is. Yes. You know, and they go, what happened? And I told them what happened. They go, yeah, we know. We know. We, oh we knew something was going on. The whole church was praying for you. Wow. You know, so wow. it was just, it's crazy. So that was one of the first times I saw the face of death. Literally saw the face of death because that was their intent. Um, happened many times after then. One time in the Walled City. That's pretty cool. I was working there. I was passing out tracks, you know, and on the back of the track, I had my signature with a seal on it. And they could take that track to a friend of mine's restaurant nearby and they could get a bowl of jok. Jok is uh, Chinese rice and chicken. Yeah. You know, and because uh, you can't give them money, they'll just buy more drugs. And, but if they took the track and they'd go to that restaurant with that track, it was good for a bowl of jok. And so I would, I would give tracks to all these drug addicts, you know, so that at least they'd get one bowl of nourishment. And, and uh, this guy walks up, he's like what they call a straw boss. He had a fedora on and he was in the triad, he was in the gang, a higher level, and he had these bodyguards with him that had machetes. Now, mm -hmm. when you're in the walled city, Anything can happen there because there was no government. There was no law. Wow. And um, wow. It, it would be like if uh, we're in Nashville. So what if Nashville belonged to Russia? And you could literally cross the street and be in America. So I could go over there to that gas station over there, kill someone, step over on this side of the street and hold a bloody knife up. And the cops would stop there on that street knowing they couldn't come in and get me. That was the walled city. Wow. The Walled City had prostitution. It did uh, human slavery. It did all your all your nasty films. It had uh, slavery. All the old plastic flowers that you used to buy, they were all put together by children, six, five, six, seven years old. They were paid pennies a day, if that, you know. Mm. Um, it, it, it was... The Walled City was a very, very dark place. So this... And so I was there, and this guy, and this guy, this guy looks at me, and he goes... Yeah, yeah, they have bought, they have wagons that would come by and pick up the bodies in the morning of the dead people. They just take them out and throw them out in the street, and then a wagon will come by and pick them all up, stack them up, and take them. And so, and no questions asked, no investigations, you know. And um, so here I am, a white male working in the walled city, right? How old? Uh, at this time, I was uh, 15, 16, and. Um, but I wore a Chinese um, a Chinese jacket, a shirt, you know, the blue shirt, high-collar blue shirt with the buttons like the Kung Fu jacket. Mm -hmm. Always wore a Kung Fu jacket because it had big pockets. You could carry a lot of tracks, mm -hmm. you know. And, and also, I studied Kung Fu. I studied Chinese martial arts. And so I wore that, and um, I just loved these people. And they felt it, you know. They knew mm. it. So anyway, this guy, he comes up, and he goes, uh, he comes up, and he goes, he Asked for a track, and I hand him one, and he looks at and he hollers out real loud. So everyone in the den, there's probably 200 people in there taking drugs at one time in this, this facility. And he hollers out really loud. He goes, oh, unlike you, we're not rich. We don't go to school. We can't read. And he spits on it, throws it down in the mud, and stomps on it. You know? And uh, I was just smart mouth enough. Sarcasm, I don't know if it's my second language. Um... <laughs> And, and I don't really know when not to use it, okay? <laughs> Especially at 15, 16. I, at 16, I was invincible, you know? Oh, gosh. And 
and I looked at him and I said, well, you know, I was asking, can you hear? Your ears work? You know? And he goes, well, of course. And I said, well, good. All you got to do is to go to this restaurant over here and they will read it to you since you can't read. And he got offended by that. Imagine that. And he looked at these guys, he goes, behead him. And immediately, I mean, yeah. um, two o'clock, five o'clock, 11 o'clock, seven o'clock, I had four guys yeah. with machetes in their hands, yeah. ready to take out the order. And he leaves, he just gives the order and walks away. Had a little cocky attitude, looked a little bit like Mussolini. Remember how Mussolini had his head up yeah. all the time, yeah. had looked down on people. He had that, you know, that attitude. He walked out. And uh, I'm standing there and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I know I can take the guy on the right. You know, there's just something about this street stuff that gets in your blood. I know I can take him out. I can take his machete. I know I can take this guy out. The one I'm going to have to worry about is the guy to my left. That is the, he's the bad one. He's the guy that I, uh, just, I don't know how I know this, but that guy can fight. That guy knows what he's doing. So I got to take these guys out of my way so I can concentrate on him and I can, I can survive this. And then as I'm thinking that, and of course, this is all in a nanosecond. As I'm thinking, I'm going, but wait a minute, I'm in the middle of the walled city. I'll never make it out of this city without being killed first. There's no point. There's no point in me fighting mm -hmm. because I'll never make it. What testimony is that? Mm -hmm. So I'm saying all this is happening within a second. And so I look up skyward in the smoke and I say, Lord, I surrender. If this is my time, let them see love. Holy cow. Wow. And I was, I just laid my life down. I was like, this is it. I'm okay with this. Let them see love. <laughs> the guy on my right, Mr. Nasty, right? I'm going to call him first. He's standing there looking at me. The other guy's looking at me. They're all kind of looking at one another. And the, the little weasel guy on the right, he says, uh, can, before we kill you, can I have one? <laughs> and so I give him one. And then badass wants one, right? The real, the, the yeah. real tough guy. Yeah. He wants, he says, can I have one? I said, do you have family? He goes, yes. I said, how many? He goes, three. I go, here, here, here's one for you and three more for your family. Do you have family? Here, have, have some extras, you know? And would you like some too? So I gave all four on these tracks, you know, and then all the people in there, everyone wanted them. Everybody in there wanted one. Everybody in there wanted one. So I can't give them away fast enough. I'm literally being pressured. They're getting up from the tables, from the drug tables. They're coming. They're pressuring me. I'm literally taking groups of 20 tracks and tossing them away from me in the air just to get them to go that way to get them. Yeah. So that I, they don't suffocate me. Yeah. And... From that day on, I could go in there day or night, no problem, and I never saw Straw Boss again. I don't know what happened to him. I don't ask, but there was almost a revolt that day. And when I left to come back to the United States in 1969, on October 10, 10, 10, 69, um, the day before I left, there was a, a get together, mm -hmm. and this old Chinese man walked up to me and he says, please don't forget us. Please don't forget when you go to America. Uh, we love you, chicken egg. 
And I'm like, uh, <laughs> what did you call me? You know, he was chicken egg. You're a chicken egg. And, and, and I said, what? You know, I didn't understand. And then he, he saw my confusion. He takes his old wrinkled hand and he puts it on the side of my face. And he goes, white skin like egg, outside white. And then he takes his hand and lays it on my chest. He goes, but yellow heart, you are Chinese. You are Chinese heart. You love for Chinese. And uh, hmm. I'll never forget it. Hmm. You know, it's one of those moments that uh, <laughs> nicknames such as chicken egg becomes an honorable thing. You know, it's kind of illuminating. But yeah, that's that was Hong Kong. It was so great. You, so you came back to the U.S. Came back to the U.S. Got a bunch of jobs. I've done everything: construction, you know, sales, different different things, different places. Lived all over the United States, different doing different things, and uh, never finished college. Uh, just was unsettled. I'd moved around too much. Uh, traveled a lot. Rolling Stone doesn't grow moss. I had no moss, buddy. Uh, <laughs> and. Uh, where did that heart come from? The heart? To move around and... I just think because as a missionary kid, I was I was in so many different schools and traveled so much, you know, over a period of time that I just, I never could really feel like I had roots anywhere, you know. Actually, I didn't have roots until I got married when I was 39 years old, married my professor <laughs> married your professor tell well, me that story i was a magician so i was working i was a uh, the president of the society of american magicians in north carolina what and i was a member of the ibm ring there in raleigh and I, my my job in 19 this would have been 1990s i did entertainment and i was an entertainer and i it, my venue was sleight of hand and what they call parlor magic Mm-hmm. So I did a lot of the uh, Christmas shows for IBM, Northern Telecom, Research Triangle Park, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. How did you get into that? I was alone in uh, Phoenix, Arizona on Christmas Day, completely by myself, feeling sorry for myself. And I had just learned this little sponge ball routine and a little hanky routine. And... I had a little magic deck of cards and I'm sitting there, it's Christmas day and I am just in an apartment by myself. The, the job I had moved there for wasn't paying, you know, turned out to be a scam. But anyway, uh, I was living on my credit cards. Things were not good. And I'm like, okay, so what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do today? And I went and I found the children's hospital and I went into the, the ward there all these children on Christmas Day that are in the hospital mm. and I went up to their beds and I did a little magic show for them you know it's just something to do I mean you gotta do something right yeah. <laughs> and the response was awesome yeah and understandably so I so when I moved back to North Carolina I got a job working at a restaurant first time waiting tables gives you an appreciation of waiters a tip heavy now <laughs> and uh, they would only give me like two two tops at Chi Chi's, right? They gave me two two tops. Like, I'm not gonna make any money on two two tops, because, but I'm the new boy, so therefore I only get two two tops. But I made more tips, because I do 
magic tricks for the kids at the table. And I was knocking out a hundred bucks a night in tips, you know, and this is, this is all right, you know? And uh, another magician saw me and he says, I want you to fill in for me at my restaurant. That's oh, is that a thing? He goes, uh, yeah. And you're good with kids. So let's do this. So I filled in for him for a while. And then finally he moved to Korea. And when he did, I wound up with his contracts. And so next thing I know, I'm a full-blown magician, and I'm raking in some serious cash, right? Yeah. And um, living life like I'm stupid. I'm in my 30s, no savings account, a lot of cash, not reporting much, <laughs> you know, living in North Raleigh, having the good life, not following the Lord. Really? Not following the Lord. After uh, all of that you went through. All that that I went through, at this point in time, I had gone through a divorce and was, I I'd lost, lost the battle for my custody oh, no. by sheer lies. And I did not see that God was going to do that. And I was kind of mad about that. So mm. I just wasn't, I wasn't where I needed to be. Yeah. And um, I mean, I, wasn't, I didn't hate God or anything like that. I just wasn't, I wasn't where I needed to be, you know. And um, I was, I was in a wreck. Uh, I was at a two o'clock in the afternoon sitting in a intersection and a guy looked in my mirror and saw a truck coming at me at high speed and I just braced myself. That's all I had time for before he rear-ended me doing about 70 miles an hour. Oh my gosh. And um, my arm was outside the window. And so it ripped my left arm back, the, the inertia of the yeah. car being yeah. jerked forward, tore Tor my rotor cuff. Yeah. And um, knocked me out. Uh, my my head, that was an old, I had an old, uh, I think it was a Nissan or Toyota or something, but the glass was right behind your head. Do you remember the, the windshields were right? It wasn't like a crew cab. So when my head went backwards, it, I busted out the back window and then I went forwards and bent the windshield and took out the windshield. Oh, no. So I had a, a double whammy. Yeah. Um, and uh, wound up uh, not being able to work. I had to give all my work away. My parents, for the first time, did tough love. And uh, they came to see me in the hospital, and they go, well, what are you going to do when you get out? You can't afford that $1,200 a month house rent that you're paying in North Raleigh to live that lifestyle you're living. What are you going to do? You can't work now, and you don't have insurance. It's time for you to grow up. And I'm like, yeah, I guess it is. You know, and uh, I said, okay. They said, so here's the deal. Here's what mom and dad are going to do. We're going to let you come and live with mom and dad again. You can have your old bedroom back. We're not going to charge you a dime, and you can even eat there as long as you're going to college, maintaining a C or better. Nothing, no Ds and no Fs. Or when you get out, we'll drive you to Sears. You can get you a nice big refrigerator box, and we'll take you down to the bridge, and you can live under there. Wow. And I knew they meant it. <laughs> and I really, having lived the lifestyle I was living in North Raleigh, was not interested in living in a cardboard box under a bridge. That was just not acceptable. I'll go to school for that. Okay. <laughs> and uh, went to school, met this teacher, came in one, one day, first day of class. I looked up, there was this little blonde, beautiful, blue-eyed woman coming in and I looked up and I was sitting in the very back of the class because I was planning on doing all my homework on the computer during this class, right? And I looked up and she's there. And I go, are you the, the, the professor? She goes, yes. 
I immediately jacked, got my disc out, picked up all my books, moved to the front of the class and sat down. If I'm going to have this kind of eye candy, I'm going to get close, buddy, you know. And uh, turned out that we were just friends. She was engaged to a guy at the time, a doctor, and uh, I had a girlfriend sort of at the college. But neither one worked out. And the following summer, I saw her again at a restaurant. We had dinner that night and the next night. And then that weekend, I took her to church. And that next week, we had dinner every night. And uh, we dated for two weeks, got engaged, married a month later. And that was 30 years ago this year. So <laughs> God divinely put her in my life. I remember going home that day after meeting her, and I was telling my mom and dad, I said, wow, you would not believe this beautiful, beautiful doctor I have for this computer class. And my mom goes, well, you know, that may be the one the Lord has for you, son. And I go, yeah, mom, I'm sure. She's going to tell her millionaire doctor friend that, oh, I found, I found a young man. He is, he's almost 40 years old, lives at home with mommy and daddy, has no job, never graduated from high school, doesn't have a college degree. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, uh, he's, he's a real catch. I'm going to lose you for him, you know. And uh, my mom just smiles, says, honey, if it's meant to be, God will bring it to pass. And uh, that's all I want to say. It may be. And by God, if it wasn't, you know, a year later, it, we remet. And uh, uh, two weeks later, we were engaged. A week, uh, a month later, we were married. And that was 30 years ago. And best thing that ever happened to me because really? that that ball and chain caused me to settle mm. because she had a permanent job stationary and all of a sudden I had to be in one place for a long period of time and uh, I grew up I got my college education uh, opened up project Noah I was doing uh, magic as I told you yeah. and started to do uh, illusions I wanted to get into illusions and build that God had other plans, gave me two lions to start with. And those two, one of them was sick when I got it, three lions. months old. African lions, yes. Yes. Because the, the Lion King movie had just come out. And so I'm thinking that instead of using tigers in the show, I would make lions appear and disappear, you know, and yeah. do that kind of illusion, Siegfried Roy kind of thing. And so uh, I got these, I put the word out on the, in the magical world with all my contacts through the IBM and different associations. I'm looking for some lions, cubs, because I knew I'd have to start with cubs, because there's no way in the world I'm going to take an adult lion, you know. I'm not just knowing not, where... Not knowing anything about them? No, 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 no. I'm going to raise the thing first. Yeah. So, and that was a smart move. Uh, and it turned out that 20, 20 minutes from me was a person who'd been working with Barnum & Bailey as a lion trainer. Lived 20 minutes, retired. Wow. And and so, and she was leaving to go to move to Vegas, and... Her house thing fell through, and for six weeks, she was delayed. And I had six weeks of hands-on training with her, with her lions and cougar and stuff. And so I knew what I was doing, so to speak. Um, I had all, the, had all the right. Everything just fell together. And uh, it was just divine appointment. Uh, used that cat for, for ministry. Uh, started Project Noah, got out of the magic altogether, started conservation education. What's Project Noah? Project Noah Inc. is a 501c3 that I started as a ministry, to, as a menagerie. We were building an educational zoological park and where I would teach creationism. In fact, I was actually talking to uh, Noah's Ark there in Hong Kong 
yeah. about coming over there, but we couldn't get the permits from the Chinese Communist government to bring my cats over. But they wanted me to come and live at the Ark in Hong Kong and be Noah as a live-in and have those lines there on Chungchow Island, uh, there by Noah's Ark. And we were actually discussing that at one time, yeah. uh, looking at that possibility, but that didn't pan out. That's okay, God had other plans. Yeah. And um, so my heart though has always been on missions. And uh, when the tsunami occurred, so I went, ah, I did the Katrina stuff. I, anytime there's a problem, I, I go to the problem, you know. Katrina, okay, so I'm down in Gulfport building houses. You know, I just, I do that kind of stuff. Uh, tsunami happened, I went to Indonesia. And uh, the Lord opened that door up, and within, by the second week of January, I was boots on the ground in Banda Aceh. And I took over water purification and medication. And um, when I got there, I was staying with uh, Doctors Without Borders, and um, I worked with the, the teams there, and I saw the impact they had on these people in this devastating moment of, of history. I mean, it was just devastating. And mm. I knew then that I wanted for the rest of my life to be back on the mission field. Mm. And so what do I do? Well, I need to get my degrees. I need to get college because if I go into some countries, they don't let you go in as a pastor or missionary. But if you go in as a teacher or something else, you got college paper then they'll let you come in and teach something, you know, like English in China for a long time. And um, so that was my goal. And, and I told my wife, I said, what am I going to do? What's up? She says, well, why don't you take religious studies? You know, you seem to know a little bit about religion. <laughs> so I did, and it was a wonderful course. I got my undergrad in religious studies at Western Kentucky. I had some wonderful professors, wonderful professors. And... Um, and then afterwards, I started my MBA, but I realized that's not what I wanted to do. Switched over to agriculture so that I could do instructions and, and education in helping people in food deserts. So it's my goal to feed a million people, hmm. you know. And um, so I'm leaving in a few weeks to go to Mongolia. Uh, next month, I'll be in Mongolia. Um, I'll also be in Poland, but that's another story. But I'll be going to Mongolia to teach them how to grow have a greenhouse in Mongolia that can operate and grow vegetables year-round. It's going to be fun. <laughs> you have also become a Santa. Yes. yes. You, have, you, have a, you have a giant white beard, long white hair. Yep. <laughs> and some elves. Yeah, and my daughter's name is Noel, born on Christmas Eve. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's, that was an interesting transition, uh, because, I, because of my studies in the word, uh, you know, I just, I never wanted to have any, anything really pagan in my house, you know? And so I did not do the Christmas thing because there's so much pagan legends attached to it. Um, and, uh. One day I was I was renting equipment from Kodak and uh, some camera equipment, and the guy saw me who was head of the Santa Plus was Kodak's division of their uh, of a group of Santas that real bearded Santas that they supplied to malls around the United States, and um, he asked me he said I'd like for you to be a Santa, 
And I was trying to be nice because it was renting equipment and I didn't want to offend him, you know, and I wasn't going to say, oh, hell no. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> I would never be such a creature. Um, I just smiled and I said, well, I, yeah, I'll pray about it. Give me a call. You know, that was my answer. It was off the cuff. My wife understood that I'll pray about it. Give me a call was more like saying, call me when hell freezes over, yeah. you know. And um, so then months later, I forgot about it. Months later, the phone rings and it's him again. He's saying, hey, I got this contract. We want you to be a Santa. And I'm like, oh, you actually called. No. Oh, ooh, no. You know, and uh, the Lord reminded me, you know how the Holy Ghost can just remind you of something. And in a second, you just got a download of information. You just have such yeah. understanding of vast. And so in, in a moment, I knew that I had told him that I was going to pray about it and that I had not prayed about it. And that was convicting me. And I was like, uh, uh, can you call me in the morning? Let me check my schedule, see if it's open. Because in my mind, it was going to be full. I was going to find something to put there, you know. <laughs> and uh, and so the, the answer is going to be no. You know, I got to make an arrangement so that I'll be busy, you know, so that I have to say no. And so I hung up the phone. I said, okay, God, I hate, I hate to even bother you with this stupid. I already know the answer, but look, just in case, and I know you don't, but just in case you want me to be this heathen thing called a Santa. Yeah, you're going to have to let me know today. And I'm not leaving my hundred acre farm. And so when he calls tomorrow, the answer is going to be no, unless you want me. And I know you don't, but if you do, you know, that was my, that was my attitude. I just, I just knew that I knew that I knew that I knew that I knew that God would never have a person who understood scripture be a Santa. And see, I, I'd become religious without realizing it. Mm -hmm. And, um, that afternoon, my wife comes home with the story and she says, uh, this lady that she'd run into asked, what was I up to? Because that's an appropriate question if you knew who I was, if you knew me. What's Max up to these days? You know, what's the latest? What new animals does he have or whatever, you know? And uh, my wife mentioned to her, as well, he got a phone call from uh, Kodak. They wanted him to be a Santa. And she was about to say, but I know my husband, and that ain't happening, you know? Uh, no matter what they offer him, money will not persuade him. He, yeah. he will not be bought. Yeah. And um, before she could say that, the lady goes, oh, he'd make a great Santa. Let me tell you what he happened to me. She says, I was an atheist, and I took my daughter to see Santa. And she got on his knee, and he asked her what she wanted. He, she says, I want mommy to remember who I am because she doesn't know me. That sends up red flags to a Santa if the child says that mommy doesn't know me because mm -hmm. that must not be mommy. Is this child abducted? What's the story here, you know? Yeah. So this man who happened to be a minister who believed in the power of prayer and, and that God moves, yeah. he said, he called the mother and says, your daughter has an unusual request. And he told her, she says she wants you to remember who she is. Can you explain that to me? Because if you can, I'm calling the cops, basically, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, she says, Oh, Sam, I'm so sorry. Yeah, she says she didn't understand. She says, I was in a car wreck and had brain damage, and um, I lost all my memory. I had to be, after I was in hospitalized for a long period of time, I, they introduced me to my husband and my kids, and that I'll have to be, I'll, I'll, I have to learn from their stories and from photos, you know, but that's it. I have no memory, none. 
Wow. Didn't know her husband. Wow. That kind of that kind of damage. Okay. Wow. And it had been three years earlier. Double wow. So that wasn't going to get any better. She says, so there's nothing, nothing can be done about it. She's going to have to get over it. She'll, she'll learn when she gets older. She'll understand when she gets older. And Santa goes, well, do you mind if I pray for you? And she laughs. She says, you knock yourself out. Literally, those were her words. Knock yourself out. She says, I'm an atheist. You know, but if it makes you feel good, go for it, baby. You know. Yeah. And so he just he holds this little girl and he says, Father, I ask that you answer this little girl's request that this family may know your love and come into your kingdom in Jesus' name. Yeah. Little girl bounces down. They leave. Next morning, she wakes up. She's laying there on the bed, eyes still closed. Memory has, is flooding her. All these thoughts, all these things, all this stuff has come back. She has a 100% memory recollection, completely healed. Even remembers the car accident. Remembers the, up to the point of impact. And she sits up. She gets dressed. She goes straight to the Santa set, walks up to Santa, tell me about this God you serve, and accepted Christ right there on the set. So <laughs> she tells me this story, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. God wants me to be a Santa. You know, I can't believe this. Oh, God, please, no, not really. Santa, of all things, don't you have any openings for a donkey? I mean, isn't there a jackass opening somewhere? You know, I'd rather be a jackass. You know, I was really that much against it. And, uh, and then I went, because I knew God wanted me to, to do it. This, this was obvious. This was very obvious. So I took the job, and I'm up there. Okay, so what can I, I can sabotage my job. I don't have to do this job, right? I mean, God opened the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, 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 but they're not going to let me pray for people on the set. Yeah, I'll get, I'm in New Hampshire, buddy. They'll, they'll kick me out of here in a nanosecond. So people started coming up. They told me their problems. I'm like, can I pray for that? You know, I'm, I'm Santa. Yeah, I'm in the toy department. You need to talk to God. He's the one that handles those kind of things. Let's, let's pray about that. You know, got in the newspaper praying Santa. That's what it was talked about. People started coming from Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Connecticut, all the states around to stand in a line three hours long to get to a guy that looks like a clown, right, in a red suit, come up to me and say to me, I heard that you prayed for people. I need prayer for so-and-so. My sister needs prayer. My brother needs it. My son needs it. My father, my, you know, unbelievable. Brother, that is a testimony though. We are in a dry land. Yeah. If people will drive across state lines to see a Santa for prayer, what is the church in that area doing? I, Where is the no, church? Yeah, Where is the yeah, church of power? Yeah. Where is the church of principle? Where is the church that's walking, doing and loving people like they're supposed to be loving people instead of programs? No. Yeah. Okay. So... You know, I, I, I do find it super, super funny. Yeah. You know, all right, God, I'm going to show you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and God's like, perfect. See, That's exactly that, what I wanted. And, and that, and then, yeah, yeah. And he's laughing at me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, I guarantee you, he rolled over on this one. He, he, was, he was rolling on the floor laughing. That's all that fell. He, he, he absolutely did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great point, Steve. Um. And and so, but let me tell you, the, the greatest is that that year that sealed it forever for me. Yeah. 
I play with the kids. I'm, I'm only 40 years old. I, I went white early, right? So I'm throwing these kids up in the air. I don't wait for them to come and sit the kid on my knee and I sit there and smile for a picture and they pick him up, put him off. I'm, I'm physically able to pick the kid up, right? Yeah, yeah. So the kid comes running up, I'll grab him, throw him up in the air, tickle him, turn him upside down, shake him. I'm playing with him. I'll get on the floor, throw a ball at him. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll engage with them, right? Yes. I'm engaging with these kids. Which, which, which is exactly what we would, we, we, we would envision a, a real a, a, yes. A, th- this character mm-hmm. who has this love for children and goes around the world and spreads these gifts. He's he's not going to be the stoic exactly benefactor. Yes. Instead, this this love for kids is going to engage with them at their level. Yeah, yes, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. So, so I'm doing that, and I'm known for that now. I mean, it's I'm breaking records in sales, by the way. Yeah. Seriously, and. Uh, I didn't know that at the time, but I found those out later. But anyway, so the, the, the elf comes up to me. The set manager walks up and she says, now listen, she says, there's a girl coming up. Uh, you cannot tickle her, bounce her, bump her, scare her, startle her in any way, shape, form, or fashion. You sit perfectly still. Nurses are going to pick her up out of her wheelchair, set her on your knee. You're going to, we're going to smile, get a picture. The nurses will pick her up, put her back in the chair. Do not make any sudden moves. Okay. Okay. Bring her on. So wheelchair comes up. Gorgeous little girl. Just a princess. Yeah. Drop dead gorgeous. Beautiful little girl. This is the first year. First year Santa. They pick this little girl up. The nurses pick her up and they set her so... I mean, they're moving like... like like it's... Slow motion. Very slow motion. Sets her down on my knee real slow and easy. I mean, they're moving so slow. I mean, you know, I'm like, wow. I mean, this woman really meant slow, you know. So I said, no, I smile. We get our picture taken. And this whole family, there's like 15 of them. Uncles, aunts, nephews, cousins. You know, the whole, the whole family is here, you know. And uh, they're all looking at the pictures. And I look at this cute little girl who's very young, very young. And you'll understand how young when I give her this answer. <clears throat> So, honey, you are beautiful. I love that pretty dress. Oh, thank you. Um, are, are you sick? Why are, why are you in a wheelchair? Are you not well? Oh, mommy says I might go see Jesus this Thursday morning. Oh, no. So we're having Christmas tonight. Oh, wow. I have a girl at home. That same age. Wow. You could not have kicked me in the stomach. I caught mom's eye. I caught her. What is wrong with this gorgeous little girl? She looks like the picture of health. Mom says, well, Santa, thank you for asking. She's... Got an aneurysm the size of a golf ball in her brain. Thursday morning, we're taking her to New York. I think it's Mount Sinai or Boston Hospital, some hospital there. Um, They're going to do surgery. And she has very limited time if we don't have the surgery because it's growing at a rapid rate. It's getting bigger and bigger. We've been watching it now. And she has... uh, 
they're telling us that she has 3% chance of coming off the table mm. successfully. That's what we have. Whew. Wow. I said, would I, would it be okay if I prayed for your girl? And the mother said, oh, would you please? Tears start running down her cheeks. Yes, please do. I said, well, this isn't for entertainment purposes. And I'm not talking about, I'm going to put her on a prayer list. I'm going to pray for her right now. Get your whole family around this chair right now. This is no one's business but ours and God's. She tries to say, hey, folks, everybody, over here at Santa's chair now. <laughs> All those people gather around that chair. I hugged that little girl. Mm. <laughs> I looked at her and I said, in the name of Jesus, I proclaim life and not death. You should. And, and it was like, words just came out of my mouth. I, even I looked at the mother and I pointed my finger right in her face. I said, your child shall live and not die. And you will see the hand of the Lord. <laughs> and so I'm thinking she's going to make the... She's going to pull through. I know it. She's, going to, she's, she's not going to die on that table. She's going to live. I said, you give the registry your phone number. I'm calling you Thursday afternoon, Thursday evening when I get off work. I want to hear all the details. Thursday night I call. There's a lot of noise in the background. Joyous noise. And I go, the mom gets on. Santa! And I said, yes. I said, well, it sounds like you're celebrating. So she survived. She goes, oh, you won't believe what happened. And I go, oh, come on. <laughs> Try me. Try me, baby. You know. And she says, well, they, they took her in and they gave her the dye. They said that as we're pushing the carriage, take the, the, the gurney in to uh, do the, the last C-scan or something just before the x-ray. They got to do it one more time. They shaved her head. They put the dye in her. And uh, they get her all prepped, and they're going to do this, and then they're going to immediately operate, you know. And as the doctor was rolling her into the x-ray room, he looked down at her and he kind of patted her. He said, no, honey, don't be scared. She says, we're just, he said, we're just going to take some pictures. And she says, oh, I'm not scared. Santa Claus is praying for me. And uh, <laughs> I'm not scared. Santa Claus is praying for me, you know. Wow. <laughs> and, they took her back there, and they said, and then we waited, and we waited, and we waited, and we waited for what it seemed like eternity. And they finally— and they kept scanning her, kept scanning her, kept scanning her. They come out, and they said, you got to step back here. And they had all these pictures on the wall. They said, this was the first time she came in. This is the last time. This, you know, this, was the next, this is the last time. And here's today. And for some reason, here's all today's of the multiple times that we have done it over and over again. There's nothing wrong with your child— Take her home. She can go play. She can do whatever she wants to. We don't. We cannot explain it, but there's nothing wrong with this child. She is perfectly whole, perfectly healthy. Have you? Did you see any miracles before that to give you that kind of faith? No. Or was that something that just it just washed you just in happened. the moment? It was a moment thing. Wow. Yeah. It just bam. Yeah. So I knew then <laughs> that this was a God thing. That you know what God can use a Santa to reach people and show His love. Can you imagine that? What kind of a God is that, huh? What kind of a God can use a Holy Smokes Club to reach people? What kind of a God can use a an Alice Cooper to reach people for God? You know? Yeah. 
But that's not the only story that you've heard. Oh, and how long have you been doing it now? Now, 20 years, 20 something years, 20 over 20 years, over 20 years. Tell me about some of the other stories. Oh, I had um, I've had a lot of fun ones. Uh, Had some funny ones. Had some had some great ones. Um, I had a woman one time at the beginning of the season. She was about 35 years old. Uh, at the beginning of the season, when I say beginning of the season, it's usually before Thanksgiving. It's very, very slow. You're just basically in a mall. You're sitting there as advertisement to remind people to come back and get their pictures taken with Santa, you know. And uh, so I'm sitting there, and it's before Thanksgiving and slow. And uh, this woman just comes in because there's no line. She just walks in, sits down beside me, kind of slams me in the shoulder and goes, Hey, Santa. And I go, How you doing? She goes, Oh, I'm, I'm good. And I said, Oh, you're being good, are you? She goes, oh, yeah. She says, listen, she says, uh, when you're flying around the earth this year, if you see any children that would uh, that that need a loving home, uh, I'm available. She says, my husband and I, we've tried for 15 years to have children. We've done all the fertility clinics. We've done everything. We've tried and tried and tried. No success. She says, so if you just see some kids that need a home, would you would you bring them over to my house? I'd, I'd like that. I said, you know what? I'll do one better. I said, I'll, I'll pray for you right now. How's that? Can we do that? She goes, oh, sure. Let's do it. So I put my arms around her shoulder and I said, Father, you've done this with Sarah. This isn't impossible for you. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, grant this woman the wish to obey your commandment, to be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Grant her her wish, her heart's desire, Father, open the womb, who wherever the problem lies, whatever it is, you fix it in Jesus' name. And uh, we just, we speak life. We speak that, that, she's, that she has children, that she may come to know you and your love. The next year, oh, she smiles. Oh, thank you, Santa. Just lighthearted, you know, didn't take it serious, left. Next year, I'm sitting there getting pictures taken with twins. This woman walks up and says, remember me? I went, no, ma'am. She says, well, I came to see you last year before Thanksgiving. She says, you prayed that I'd have children. I said, oh, yeah, I remember that. She says, well, she says, nine months later, these two popped out. (laughs) I said, really? She goes, yeah. She says, I just wanted to come by and say thank you. She said, because it was exactly nine months later. She says, we tried for years and years and years. She says, prayer works. <laughs> kind of like, I wish I'd try that instead of spending all my money, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and she says, I'll be seeing you again. So I expected to see her every year from then on, but I never saw her again until just a few years ago. Uh, some young men, uh, boys, uh, nine or ten years old came to see me and uh, they sat down and uh, we got our picture taken and she walks up she goes by the way she says you remember a lady that you prayed for and she had twins and I go yeah she says well these are the twins and I looked at these two nine-year-olds you know and yeah. I'm like wow you know wow where have you guys been she says, well my husband got transferred to Florida business and but I've told them about you and they wanted to meet the Santa that prayed them into existence. So we drove up from Florida so that they could meet you and get their picture taken with you. Mm. And uh, 
So I said, well, that's awesome. I said, just the two of them? She goes, yeah. She says, yeah, just the two of them. And I said, well, here, have a seat right here, and we'll pray again. And she goes, oh, no, 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 no. Two's enough. Two's enough. Thank you very much, you know. So anyway. So, Max, you talked earlier, touched on it, the two lions. Yes. That, 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 apparently, that turned into a little more than just two lions. Yes. Uh, so instead of doing the magic with the lions, um, I wound up starting Project Noah and using the lions as a ministry to reach people and do an educational program. So it was the beginning of a, what turned out to be a menagerie of animals. I had lions, ostrich. I had a rescue center, 100 acres, and I was building a zoological park with a creation theme behind it. And school buses were coming in. The month of October, we had a fall festival, and we were booked solid all day long. School buses coming and going all day long. Um, and I was able to talk to them like I'd have a cicada tortoise, and I'd bring the tortoise out, and I'd explain how they can dig down into the earth. And when there's a drought in Africa, and they are, their shell actually absorbs water, and they can survive that way. And I talked about how the how what a great design this was. A lot of Steve Grayson's design uh, mm -hmm. series stuff, you know, mm -hmm. uh, is, is kind of what I was doing. And um, and it was going really well, and I thought that was going to be my legacy, and I thought that was what God had for me. And I see now that I wouldn't be on the mission field again had that because I couldn't leave home with those lions and tigers, and I had bears, yes. I had wolves. I had ostrich. I had highland cows, fainting goats, you know, ostrich. Fainting goats are freaking rock. Those things <laughs> they, are the they coolest. Are, they are. They are. Uh, they're, they're so funny. But we had all these a menagerie of animals. Just all of them were rescues. Um, and even the, quote, dangerous animals like a lion or a tiger uh, or cougars, servals and all, they were they were my pets. I mean, I, they were in my house. It's like, you know, my what? lion, my what? lion, my lion slept within a bed with us until she was just Too you know, big. a couple hundred pounds and was taking up more of the bed than we had. Finally, I put her outside in the cage, you know, yeah. but uh, I mean, when I say a cage, I mean, it was a big enclosure. But I would, you know, I'd go out there and I, I'd go, I'd sleep with my lioness. I'd, I'd use her as a pillow. Interesting thing, when she was, we, I only bred her one time because as a rescue facility, I, I wasn't about breeding the animals. I was about saving animals that had been in, in homes that were, they don't need to be in. And, um, uh, but I was working with the D.A.R.E. program at the time. And they wanted a male lion. Darren the lion is the mascot for the D.A.R.E. program. Mm -hmm. And so I bred Sheba to get a male lion that we could use that the officer, of <laughs> the local D.A.R.E. officer, would be terrified of. And so I, we have a cub. So now he's able to go in. So for graduation for the D.A.R.E. programs, I would show up at all the local schools for the D.A.R.E. program graduations and with a lion. If and and that's that's kind of was a was a cool thing, um, but uh, yeah, that turned into a, a wonderful ministry for a while, but um, politics got in the way, and I just leave it at that. Hmm. Um, Peter got involved, and money got involved, hmm. and I didn't foresee that coming, and so there were some laws that were changed, and I basically had to. I was grandfathered in, but I was forbidden to do any more. Well, then there's no future. Mm -hmm. You know, so I saw the handwriting on that and I just didn't know what to do. And that's when my wife says, why don't you go back to college? You never finished your college. And we just live on my income for a while. And uh, why don't you do that? 
because I was at a, it was, when, when what you think is your life's legacy is pulled out from under you, you okay, God, what's what next? You, what's next? And what do you, what, what am I supposed to be doing then? You know, what's the purpose? What am I here for? And, um, so it was a transition and it was basically to get my college education. And so I went back to school and found out I actually liked college and school. So I wound up not only with a, a undergrad in religious studies, but then I got my master's in agriculture so I could work in food deserts. And then I got an organizational leadership so I could actually maybe learn a little bit of organizational skills and leadership skills. So now I've got all these documents and you know, I'm, I'm an old man. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go. So that's why now I'm leaving like in a few weeks to go to Mongolia to help advise and help a church there that's wanting a greenhouse in Mongolia to feed, uh, to help feed the hungry, you know, the needy. And you were talking about last night while we were having cigars, greenhouse. Yes. Talk about that. Well, going I, to Wisconsin and. Yeah, yeah. Well, you you know you got you got these people that have got uh, there's uh, greenhouses in the snow, and that that old man that he's a great engineer guy. He's in his nineties. I look forward to meeting him soon. Uh, and when I say soon, I mean within the next few weeks. Yeah. I want to see his operation. I'm going there uh, to see that before I go to Mongolia, of course. He's got a greenhouse up there in, but you know this unbelievable cold area. Northern and Wisconsin, right? I think it's Wisconsin. It's one of those Nebraska, <laughs> Wisconsin, one of those cold states, Yankee states. Not Yankee, actually. It's, it's further inland. But uh, uh, it gets very cold there. It gets well below z- 20, below zero there. And, uh, and he has no heat system in his greenhouse, and he's growing Florida oranges year-round in that climate. So he's got it down. He's got the solar, passive solar with a geothermal. He's got that system down. And there's no sense in reinventing the wheel. So I'm going up there to see how he's doing that because I have a pretty good idea. I understand the concept of geothermal and I understand the passive solar uh, in the purposes in the greenhouse. And I see how he did that and what he did different. And I really like that concept. And Mongolia so, is a harsh climate. Harsh, but it's 260 days a year are blue sky. So solar is very, 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 very possible. And there's not a whole lot of snow in that area, really. Okay. It's just very cold, very dry. And uh, there's no vegetables. So these people are uh, pretty much carnivores. And it shows in their health records. Mm. So they're wanting to have some vegetables that they can offer to give people to help with their diet. They're wanting to, to uh, mm. use some of these vegetables for sale because a head of lettuce in Mongolia, lettuce, a good, nice set of head of lettuce, is like six fifty U.S., Wow. So they can take that lettuce and sell it to high-end markets that are selling those at restaurants and stuff and take that money and buy a whole lot of other things and vegetables that they can give the local people to eat. Yeah. And, and so that's what they're wanting to do. And so mm. I'm going over there to help with that. Looking forward to that trip. I really am. It's, it's going to be a fun trip. Harold Maxwell? Max, yes. Yes, let's yes. get to rapid fire questions. Oh boy, let's do it. Rapid fire. Fire here. How's that stick treating you? Oh, you moved on to a new one. Yes, I, I tried the the Asaniki. 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 Yes, the Red Road. 
Charles Charles Robinson just uh, gave me this stick, and it's a good stick. I've enjoyed it with the Moderno with with, with the Maduro uh, wrap wrap, and uh, he said it was one of his stronger ones, and it's it's very flavorful. Yeah, that's, I like what I was, that's what I was smoking when we started this. Yeah, it's, and it's, it's got a lot of flavor yeah, to it. Yeah, you moved yeah. on from your Arturo to that one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did. When did you first try cigars or pipe? Uh, pipe, when I got away from home and in sales, uh, started around 20 years old. It got me a Dr. Graybow, and I thought it was kind of cool. You know, I had me a pipe, you know, and a kid with a pipe. And uh, How old? 20. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, well, from... Piedmont area of North Carolina, Reynolds, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel yeah. Hill, you know, the, well, uh, uh, Winston-Salem. These are all Winstons, you know, Salem's. These are all mm-hmm. names from cities of North Carolina. Uh, so grew up in uh, tobacco fields, around mm-hmm. tobacco all my life, uh, although that was considered a sin in my, my home at that time. And uh, so I started with a pipe. And enjoyed pipe smoking um, for quite a while. Got some nice uh, Ben Wade's and some old Petersons and uh, different ones over the years. The straight grain uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Dunhill Five Star Straight Grain I gave Steve Grayson. Dunhill is pretty much my, my pipe that I still smoke occasionally. Mm-hmm. But I, General Westmoreland was one of my neighbors uh, in Carolina Trace there in, right outside of Sanford, North Carolina. And uh, he was an 858 guy. And so got to know him, and he introduced me to 858s, and I liked the flavor of them. And I thought all cigars tasted really nice until I bought some others, and they taste like cigarettes. And I kind of, I was like, I'm not doing this. I'm not wasting 15 bucks on a stick that I can't smoke, you know. And um, so I just found that I, I enjoyed the flavor of the Dominican tobaccos pretty much. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of got me started. and. Now I'm, I'm, I'm into it. <laughs> what can I say? I enjoy it. <laughs> I enjoy the fellowship of Holy Smoke so most of all. The people I have met, awesome, awesome group of, of people. Mm. What, what a great time. Mm. Favorite, guess, that's, not a rapid, that's not a rapid one-word answer. Well, no. The, 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 an- the answers are not rapid. It's okay. the questions that are, that are okay. rapid. Okay. So favorite cigar? Fuente. Most expensive cigar you've ever smoked? Monte Cristo number two, Habana. Was it worth it? Yes. <laughs> Best dollar for dollar cigar. I'd go with the 858s. For me. Where's your go to place to get your smokes? Well, there's a local shop that has them, and then uh, cigar bid. <laughs> I'm one of those. Bound by the box on that. What's your favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? I like a good scotch. Mm. Balvanis, uh, 20-year-old Balvani uh, port finish is one of my faves. Most interesting person you've ever met through cigars? Kay, probably. (laughs) Because I've never seen anyone network more than that guy. Best place you've ever smoked? When I was at St. Croix, I had, had a lot of fun down there enjoying some cigars and fly fishing at St. Croix one time when I was studying at the University of Virgin Islands down there. I was studying aquaponics mm-hmm. and uh, got some good cigars down there and had a good time down there, staying at a YWAM HQ there. Most memorable cigar experience or pipe experience? Wow. That's a hard one. Just 
any of these Holy Smokes club meetings that are memorable. They're they're just they're great. Last all, night was awesome. All of, all of them. Yeah, last night was all. I can't think of a one over there by K's at the swimming pool and did all these different places. That Colorado Springs. Uh, my goodness, it's it's great. Favorite food. I would say cooked, but then that would out, that would knock out sashimi, and that's not possible. Um, favorite food. I like them all. I like Thai. I like Japanese. I mm. like Chinese. I like I like uh, you know, believe it or not, haggis. <laughs> you know, I like them all. Yeah. Dogs, cats, neither or both. All animals. Mm. All animals. Uh, I didn't. I didn't used to like cats until I got lions. Now I see some of the characteristics in a house cat, you know, and I see the lion in the cat, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I now like cats, but I, I I love my dogs. I got shepherds and I've got um, mallies. Maligators is what they're called because they, they <laughs> like to tear up everything. But I love my mally. Yeah, I love my shepherds. Nickname growing up. HT, my initials. What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? Never had a 10th, 11th, or 12th grade, got a GED, went and now have two master's degrees. Um, <laughs> passed the GED with very high scores, 98 percentile with a ninth grade education, but that was from overseas. Hmm. Are you a reader? I am. Favorite one to three books not titled the Holy Bible? Just about anything by N.T. Wright or C.S. Lewis. Do you have a life scripture? Wow. A life scripture. We are the circumcision. Worship. Have no confidence in the flesh. Worship God in spirit. Have no confidence in the flesh. Mm. The fact that we are the circumcision because David pulled on that when he stood before Goliath. You know? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? What he was saying was, who is this out-of-covenant person? And I love the fact that we are in covenant relationship, that we, that we are one with our Father. That He is in us, His entirety is in us. The fullness of the Godhead mm-hmm. is in Christ. He is in us and we are in Him. That's awesome. And until we understand who we are in Christ, we can't really truly rest in Him. And I think that's a key thing. A lot of Christians are not resting. I think, I think a lot of people think of their works as a, and the fruit of their works as a, um, as a measuring stick for their Christianity, relation of maturity, you know, I see a different thermometer or a different measurement. I say it's how much you can rest in God. Mm. Because the more you can actually just rest in Him and understand that He's got it, He's got this. Mm-hmm. Why, my grandmother used to say, why worry when you can pray? Mm. That sums it. If you could be any animal, what would you be? Lion. Yeah, I, I love lions. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just, I love what lions. What is it? Like, what, what, what specifically about it that drew you to this love for lions? Well, having the lions started it and, uh, and then getting to know them. Hmm. Like, what, what does that mean? What? When you have a relationship with a lion, a lion can actually fall in love with you. I used to say I would take on Tyson. I'd, I'd fight Tyson. 
if I, I would say, uh, Mr. Tyson, yes, I, I, I'll fight you. Uh, here's the deal. You say when, and I'll say where. And that location would be inside my lion's cage. Take a swing at me one time. Just, I dare you. Because I know what that cat would do. <laughs> you know. Really? So they're protective? Oh, oh my and- gosh. Oh, my gosh, yes. Don't even slap my back like, hey, Max, I'll see you later. Bye. And you hit me on the back, that lion will absolutely try and come through that cage. Oh, yeah. I've, yes. Wow. <laughs> Very protective. Very wow. protective. My female lioness, when I got her, she had broken bones. Her legs were broken. Malnutrition. So she was only three months old, already had broken bones from mm. calcium deficiency. The vet said, put her down. And I said, no, 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 no. What's the other option? And he said, well, you'd have to actually give her mega doses of calcium and she cannot stand on her own two feet on her own four feet for uh, a period of uh, of two weeks oh is that it okay well they sleep 18 hours a day so i got a little little dog kennel that she could not move in that when i'd put the top i'd I'd have it open the top off i'd set her in and then push the top down so she'd have to lay down cover it she'd sleep when she'd wake up, I'd pick her up, put her in my arms, around my shoulders, back of my arms, around my shoulders, back of my arms, you know, and I carried her for two weeks on my person, her entire waking moments. And uh, we bonded. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a shepherd that has a sheep that goes awry and he breaks the leg and he has to keep it. And then that sheep will never leave the side, you know, because he's, he's learned to love the shepherd. Mm-hmm. That lioness loved me. And... Um, when she got pregnant and we were having the Judah Darren, the, the, we were having the little, she had a little, her, her litter of cubs. How many? Um, she only had four, one male and three females. And I had homes for them, good homes that I could place them in that I knew they'd be well taken care of. And I did. But the male I kept, and his name was Judah Darren, Darren for Dare the Lion, you know, but Judah because mm-hmm. Judah's what I called him, and uh, Lion of Judah. And so uh, Judah, when Judah was born, uh, the day that Sheba was giving, Sheba was the mother, when she was going to give birth that day, I went into her, her enclosure with bales of straw, which she loved to play with. And I cut open a few bales and made her a nice big pad for her to sleep on, to, to have the babies on. And I walked to the gate, to leave and she beat me there and got sideways and started pushing me back to the pile of straw and I knew she wanted me to stay with her so I stayed with her a little bit she lay down I lay down beside her and I was burbling her belly and I thought she was asleep and I got up and I quietly went to the gate boom she was there in front and pushed me back again so okay so I lay down this time and this time I'm rubbing her I'm I've I'm laying on my side, her back is on my stomach, and I'm reaching over her. Mm-hmm. Her head, my head and her head is on my left arm, and I'm reaching over my right arm and I'm rubbing her belly. And I go to sleep. <laughs> I mean, I'm in a lion's cage, sound asleep. And the next thing I know, she's nudging me mm-hmm. and wakes me up, and she's got this little male cub in her mouth, and she sets him on my chest. Mm. That was an awesome moment. Mm. That was an awesome moment. Mm. Because in the wild, 
the moms always leave the pride and go privately and have the cubs and keep them there for a week before they bring them back to introduce them to everybody. The fact that my f Sheba wanted me to have this, look she what wanted, I got. She wanted to introduce she you. She wanted to introduce me to the cubs. So she started bringing them to me and putting them on me, you know. Wow. So, yeah. Wow, what a memory. Wow. I've watched enough documentaries about lions to kind of understand the dynamics within the pride. Mm -hmm. The males and the female roles. Talk about that. Talk, talk, talk about the personality differences in general between the males and the females. And Male is pretty much a patriot. He, he, just, he is there to protect. The females do most of the killing and the fighting. But if it really gets serious, he steps in, you know. And uh, now a lot of people don't realize that if a lion loses his ability to sire cubs, his mane falls out. That's first thing that happens. Mm -hmm. And so if he's in a fight and something happens that mm -hmm. he is unable now to sire cubs, within a few weeks his mane starts to fall out. So um, the females then will, will abandon him. They will not let him because he can't be the lion anymore. So now there's going to be a new lion that's going to come into that pride. He's going to kill all the babies and then start his own, you know, mm -hmm. siring his own cubs. And as soon as he kills all the babies, all the, all the moms come in, come heat in again. Heat. Yeah. And then so now that's his pride. But the females are very, very uh, protective. Males are very protective of their pride. And um, you can, when, lions don't kill just to be killing they kill to eat. That's why if you see these documentaries, you'll see gazelles walking by a pride of lions and they're laying there because they've just eaten. They got their paws paw, pad side up, mm -hmm. sunning. They're laying there. They're, they're just, and, uh, and they're fine. Uh, you'll never see that with a leopard. A leopard might kill 14 gazelles in an afternoon just for the fun of killing them. You know, wow. it's the chase and the kill. That's what a leopard does. He can't change his spots, right? He is a killing machine. But the lions, they're very easygoing, really. They mm. really are. Yeah. Did you ever have any experiences that were negative? You might, have, you, you might have crossed the line or they put you in your place or were scary? I had one attack me. Uh, really? I've got scars on my upper left leg um, where they was eating my leg. He was eating my leg. Um, I went in. Uh, what happened was um, I was butchering a deer and I had, didn't realize it but I had spilt blood on my left leg, all over my leg and over my boot. When I was butchering this deer, I had blood all over it. And uh, this guy was showing, while I was butchering the, the, the deer, this man showed up, wanted to show a friend of his my lions. Yeah, hey Max, I'm here with this guy from church. I wanted to show him the lions, blah, blah, blah. And so I thought, okay, you know, and so I went in and I noticed that the volunteer that was there earlier had left the gate between Sheba's cage and this other lion that I was keeping for another facility while they moved and built a new new pen. And they asked me to keep some of their cats for them because I had the accommodations. So I was keeping their lion and their tiger for them at the time. And uh, so it wasn't my lion. And he was had gotten into the female, my Sheba's cage and he was trying to breed Sheba. And so he's a little aggressive. She, well, no. I walked in. The, I saw that, and I immediately went into the cage, and I'm pushing him back into his cage, mm -hmm. right? And this isn't my lion, but he's well-trained. And so I'm giving him commands, back, 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 you know, and he's backing up, you know, and I'm 
trying to get the door open, getting him in his cage. And he smelled my leg and he smelled my foot and he just chomped down on down. my leg, started eating me. And I realized, you know, I had minutes to live, literally, because I was his I was bleeding yeah. like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. And um, you know, it's interesting, the first thought that came to my head when he bit down on my leg and started chewing. See, I can't scream in pain. I can't fall down. I can't I can't jerk my leg back because then then he's going to clamp down harder and shake, and I don't want every vertebrae in my back broken. And so I'm just standing there, just okay. So this is what it feels like to be a first century Christian. Wow! Oh my gosh! Wow! That was the first thought in my head. Wow! So this is what it feels like to be a first century Christian. Wow! Yeah, that was the first thought that came into my head. And then I'm like, okay, Lord. Now my daughter was three and a half and she had come out there and saw me in the cage and saw what was happening. And I said, Lord, I've laid my life down. Many times. Many times. For, I said, I'm, gonna, I'm calling a card on this one. I said, I don't care if today's my day to go. I'm okay with that. But not like this, not in front of my daughter. Nope. I'm not going to have her scarred for life. Yeah. So I make a deal with you. You can take me any time today you want me to go if this is my time. But not like this, not in front of my daughter. Yeah. And um, so I looked at her and it's calm of dry. And I was cotton mouth. I was in shock and I knew it, you know. And I looked at her and I said, Noel, go see mommy and tell her that daddy's okay, but that I'm in the cage with the lions. Go tell her. Go tell her. I was giving her a job to do so she could get mm -hmm. out of there. Mm -hmm. And she did, and she left. And then I realized I don't have a stick. I need a stick. I need something to put down this cat's throat to get the gag response. The stick that you see lion people carry is not to hit them in the head, because you're never going to hurt a lion. I don't care what you hit him with. I don't care if you hit him with a baseball bat. That's not going to have the power of a gazelle's kick at the moment of death, you know, when the adrenaline is going through his, pumping through his body. The lions can handle that kind of kick right in the head. They can handle it. <laughs> You're not gonna hurt that cat. Um, <laughs> so you don't do that. But what you do is you just take that stick, you shove it down their throat, and it gives that same as you putting a finger down your throat yeah. and you wanna throw it. They don't understand that it's the stick that's doing that. So they spit you out immediately and they're coughing, they're gagging, and they don't want to come right back and bite again because they don't understand why, why did I want to throw up when I bit you? That's not good, yeah. you know? So it gives you a moment of time to do something. So I didn't have a stick. This guy was going crazy. He was just screaming his head off, running back and forth. Oh my God, oh my God, he's eating you, he's eating, you know? And, and I said, just get me a stick. He goes, I don't see a stick. And I'm thinking to myself, and I couldn't tell him because I was in shock. But I'm thinking, you know, you got hoes and rakes and shovels and all that hanging in a barn. I got to go over there and break one of those things and give me a stick for crying out loud, you know. But I, I couldn't, I couldn't formulate the sentence. And uh, so I realized I was gone unless I did something. So as the lion was opening his mouth, as he was starting to open in the chewing, in the eating process on my leg, as he opened his mouth, I took my left arm and I shoved it as fast and as hard as I could to the back of his throat and down as far as down his, I tried to take my mm -hmm. hand and go to his stomach. Mm -hmm. That's what I tried to do. Mm -hmm. And it worked. Wow. It worked. I figured I'll either lose my arm, mm -hmm. and if I do, so what? You know, I'm gonna be dead anyway if it doesn't work. 
So that's what I did. I used my arm as a stick. I rammed it down his throat. He spit me out. And as soon as he said, he took a couple steps back and it was like gagging, you know. Mm-hmm. And I looked over at Sheba and I went, Sheba. Well, Sheba didn't even see him bite me because she was over at the, the edge of the cage looking at this guy running back yeah. and forth. In the yeah. cage. She'd never yeah. seen anyone running and screaming like that before. Yeah. And so she turned around and saw me and she came over to me and smelled me. And here's something that I've not seen documented on any film anywhere. I cannot find any reference to a subsonic roar. But what I know is that Sheba, after smelling my leg, turned and looked at that male lion and I could feel a vibrato on my shirt of a roar. I could feel, you know how at a racetrack you can feel the exhaust of a, of a race car? I could feel this vibrato, but you couldn't hear it. So that's how I know there's a subsonic roar that they have. And it's not been documented that I can find anywhere. But that cat was so mad at him, even though he was twice her size, he literally started backing up as fast. He wouldn't turn around and run. He just backed up. He backed himself out of the cage into the other cage. He got out of there, got away from that girl. And I, as soon as I saw what she was doing, I let myself go and I fell to the floor and I pulled myself on all fours out of the cage, bleeding all the way. And they took me to the hospital and stitched me up. Wow. So, oh, my gosh. Yeah. That was uh, another time I saw the face of death. <laughs> I know the answer to this, but are you an early riser, night owl? Or night owl. Hoo-hoo. <laughs> if you could live anywhere, where would that be? Someplace that's warm. <laughs> warm near a beach mm. or a lake. Mm. Yeah. I like water. What's your greatest strength and what's your greatest weakness? People and people. <laughs> I get it. I, I love people, and sometimes I, I like animals more than I do people. <laughs> Who's been the greatest influence in your life? My parents. Wow. My parents. Seeing how they lived, seeing the sacrifices they made for the ministry, for the kingdom. So you healed from oh, that? Yeah. From- oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it's my, my heart is for mankind mm. to know the love of God, to know him for who he really is, not who is, has been projected as Who's- this evil, judgmental God waiting for you to make a mistake, you know. Mm. Who's the first person you think of when you hear the word successful? Don't know. I have to come back to that one. What culture other than your own do you find most fascinating? I find all cultures uniquely fascinating. Mm. I I really do. Mm. There's something unique about, like the gentleman that was just here that we were just talking with, you know, the Red Road, Dennis. Uh, That Native American, wonderful studies, wonderful people. Uh, What a heritage, you know. And then you you go to China and you you, you know you learn about their the Japanese uh, the, the their martial arts and their uh, samurais. I mean, there's all these you know Spartans. I mean, you know, I just I love. Well, I guess I like military kind of personalities more than just about anything you know, warriors kind of stuff. But. Uh, um, Every culture has got some very unique thing about them that marks them. And I think we should be, you know, I'm all about the unity, 
and all that. But I also am very much about our heritage, about who you are, what you come from. I'm Norse. I'm Norse as it can be, you know. I know, I'm Scottish Norse, you know. It's what I am, mm -hmm. my DNA, you know. Uh, there's some cool things about that, you know. Israel, what a great history, you know. Mm. I love studying this, love it, love it, love it. Mm. I, I just, I look at all God's creation, I go, only God could come up with this much variety, you know, and it's, it's just so amazing. It's just, all of it is so intriguing to me. Hmm. What's the best type of cheese? Nice, sharp, sharp, good Gouda or cheddar, something nice and sharp, hmm. got a bite to it. How do you want to be remembered? As a lover of mankind, as a peacemaker. Hmm. We were talking about this last night. You're a peacemaker, but you describe yourself as a sheepdog. Yes, yes. You're a sheepdog at heart. I'm a sheepdog, yes, I am. Um, and, and, this, and this goes back to, it's known well within the, the law enforcement community, there are three types of people. Yeah, sheep, dogs, uh, you, got, you got your sheep. They're the guys walking around that have no clues of what's going on around them. They're completely vulnerable, they're lost, got their face down in the phone, they're not paying attention to what's going on, and that makes it easy for predators. They're not paying attention when they're getting in the car, there's a van next to them. They're not paying attention to where their children are. They're not paying attention, you know, you know that's that kind of thing. They're the sheep, they're at the mercy of the wolves, the predators. And uh, with 1.2 million people in human trafficking today, that speaks a lot. Uh, 400,000, that 1.2 million in the United States. We got a major problem. That's why I'm wearing the OUR, the Operation Under, uh, Underground Railroad. I, I support Tim Ballard's work. Um, wearing his hat today, wear his armband. I, you know, I, I'm all about this stopping this human trafficking stuff. It's nonsense. Um, it's time for this stuff to end. It's time for this evil to be judged. And um, I'm all about that. All right. Final three questions. Yep. What does Holy Smokes mean to you and how, and how has it contributed to your spiritual journey? Fellowship is what it means to me. The networking of this organization is fantastic. And what it's meant spiritually is that it has, like the Santa thing, I, I, I see now God can use anything, anywhere, by anybody to reach the masses because it is his heart to love people, you know. For God so loved the world that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, it's not because we were such great people that he loved us. He loved us where we were, and he came down to where we were to bring us out. And mm. that is the gospel that I want to share. Mm. You know, it's, it's all about loving people. Mm. If you could have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. Well, simply because of my love for animals, Noah would be one of those. Mm. I think uh, that's a first. I would love to spend some time with Noah because <laughs> I think that that's going to be an interesting character. I would love, I would love to talk with Noah. I'm not one that cares for movie stars or, you know, that kind of thing. 
but um, what about Genghis Khan? What was in his head? Mm. You know, or Alexander the Great? What were these m mighty men of valor? What made them tick? Mm. I would love to know that. So that would be an interesting interview, mm. I think, to have, uh, to get to know. Um, but, um, you know, as Americans, I think we have such a great history and heritage of our forefathers. Most of the people don't realize that they were kids when they wrote the, <laughs> when they wrote those documents. They were like 20 year olds, you know, and look what they did. You know, God certainly has blessed this nation and our country, and I believe he's not through with it. So I don't know uh, Would I want to spend time with George Washington or Abe Lincoln or someone like that? Yeah, probably. Mm. That would be the third person, one of the, one of the founders, and just pick their brain about how they, what made them tick and what gave them the, uh, the audacity to go against the most powerful nation in the world mm -hmm. with virtually nothing, you know? That's why most of the time you see me with my, my appeal to heaven flag because of George Washington's flag, you know, the, with the Christmas tree on it, the appeal to heaven. Because when there's no court in the world that you can take your, for justice mm. to hear, you take it to the highest court, you take it to heaven, and you appeal to heaven for justice. And uh, so I, I, uh, I think that. Mm. All right, last question. If we're to meet one year from today and I got a bottle of your favorite scotch, what are we celebrating? We'll be celebrating uh, uh, the accomplishments of what we do this year in ministry. Uh, the Mongolian ministry, the, the Ukrainian ministry with the refugees I'll be going to next month. Uh, Poland, where I'll be working with the ministers over there and with the refugees. I'm looking forward to that and what that's, what that's going to entail. We're going to be celebrating Santa's mission and what Santa will be doing uh, on his on this new program that I'm, I'm instituting in my Santa program where I'm taking these kids that have for the last 20 years been sitting on my lap and now that some of them are older and taking them on the mission field with me. So now we've got a team of Santa on a mission. And I think we're going to be celebrating that. That's what we'll be doing. Hmm. Uh, I'm looking forward. I've got some of the kids uh, that have been, that have known me for years now. I've watched them grow up and now they're wanting to go on the mission field with me. Hmm. And I'm looking forward to doing that and opening that up and showing them that it's, uh, it's time for them now to step up and, and be the Santa, the St. Nicholas that we need to be and help people, not just toys and on a certain time of year, but, but show the love of God. Take care of the hungry, take care of the orphans, take care of the widows, let's do our job. Let's do what God told us to do to start with. Let's occupy, <laughs> let's occupy. Harold Maxwell. Max. Yes, sir. Thank you for being on the Holy Smokes Podcast. Thank you so much, Steve. God bless you, man. 